Uh, making the right identification can be a matter of life and death. Uh, my friend Diane posted this photo of what was inside her letterbox the other day. I don't know if you can tell what picture that is of what spider it is. Uh, her comment was, I might leave that letter there. Uh, in case you don't know, it's a redback spider. The telltale sign is the red stripe down the back. A bite from one can make you quite sick. And apparently before anti-venom was introduced, bites had caused death. Uh, when it comes to spiders, it's vital to make an accurate identification. It can be a matter of life and death. It's no good thinking a spider's harmless if it's actually deadly. But can I suggest it's even more important to make an accurate identification about Jesus? Because your eternal destiny is at stake. Did you notice those scary words near the end of the chapter? Verse 26, have a look at it. What good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world yet forfeits his soul? Jesus is talking about the decision someone makes about who Jesus is. It's foolish to pursue riches rather than Jesus because your soul is more valuable than all the money in the world. That decision about who Jesus is is far more important than simply a matter of opinion, like whether you like chocolate ice cream more than strawberry. Make the wrong choice about Jesus and you forfeit your soul. You lose it for eternity. So can I suggest for the sake of your eternal soul that you listen up for the next 20 minutes or so, that you put your phone away, unless you're using a Bible app, that you wake up, sit up straight, unblock your ears, your soul will thank you for it. Well, in the first section, verses 1 to 12, we see what not to do. We see people identifying Jesus wrongly. Uh, verse 1, some Pharisees, some Sadducees team up and they ask Jesus to show them a sign from heaven. We're also told it's a test. They're not genuinely seeking. They probably expect him to fail, to not be able to produce a sign, uh, and so they can prove to people that he's just the latest in a long line of pretenders. They're making a decision about who Jesus is, but it's completely wrong. Uh, look at verse 2, and just to help you see what Jesus is doing, the word for sky that Jesus uses is the same word for heaven that the, the Jewish leaders use. And here's what Jesus says. They've asked him for a sign from heaven, and so Jesus says, verse 2, Speaking of a sign from heaven, at night, if the heavens are red, you interpret the signs and predict fine weather. Uh, or in the morning, if the heaven is red, you predict storms. You can interpret the heavens, but you actually have no idea how to interpret the signs of the times. He's talking about right now, the present time of Jesus. In other words, God has already given you a sign, but you've missed it. You're already living in Jesus' time. I'm doing all sorts of signs. This is a time when God himself is visiting you. He promised it through the prophets. You should have been ready but you've missed it completely. Uh, in verse 4, Jesus dismisses the Pharisees and the Sadducees with a word of judgment. A wicked and adulterous generation looks for a miraculous sign, but none will be given it except the sign of Jonah. And he leaves, 
Uh, he leaves them behind. They've misidentified Jesus and that makes them wicked. But not just wicked, dangerous as well because they're influencers. Uh, anyone who listens to them will be influenced by them. And so in the next little section, Jesus warns the disciples, verse 6, watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees, by which he means their dangerous influence. But they think he's talking about accepting bread from the Pharisees and Sadducees. You see, they've forgotten to pack lunch, and they, they understand it a little bit like the warning a parent might give to a child, don't accept lollies from strangers. Uh, watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees, Jesus is saying to them. They misunderstand. And Jesus has a word of rebuke for them, verse 8. You of little faith, little faith ones. And then down in verse 11, he says, How is it you don't understand? I'm not actually talking about bread. He connects faith to understanding. Because they're not just misunderstanding the figure of speech about yeast, they're actually misunderstanding Jesus. That's where the lack of faith comes in. They're misunderstanding Jesus. If they'd remembered that Jesus had already fed 5,000 with plenty of leftovers, and not long after, if they'd remembered he fed another 4,000 with plenty of leftovers, then they wouldn't have misunderstood. They wouldn't have misunderstood his warning about yeast and think he was simply offering a lunch solution. If they'd recognised Jesus better, then they'd be able to trust that he'd have lunch organised, that he didn't need anyone to cater. If they'd trusted better, they would have understood about the yeast of the Pharisees. A lack of faith is connected to a lack of understanding. Uh, we wonder how the, Pharisee, uh, the disciples could have been so dull, like this is the third occasion about lunch and they, they're still not getting it. We think, oh, if that was me, I, I wouldn't have done that. Uh, they go straight to an earthly solution. You know, where are we going to get lunch from? With Jesus sitting right next to them. And we think, how can they be so blind? And yet, isn't that what we do all the time? We do the same thing. Uh, we know that Jesus can do anything. He can solve any problem, any lack that we have. And yet when something goes wrong, our first instinct is not to pray, is not to turn to Jesus. It's not to hand everything over to our powerful, loving master. It's to try to fix it ourselves, isn't it? We look for the earthly solution. Uh, we use our brains, we search the internet, we use our influence, we look, use our money, we ask a friend... We look to our solutions, not Jesus. And the disciples are just like us. But uh, the section finishes on a positive note. Verse 11, Jesus repeats the warning. And then verse 12, the disciples understand. They get it. Ah, you're talking about the teaching. We've got to watch out for the teaching. So they've got some understanding. Uh, we move into the next section and we see Jesus building on this understanding. Uh, this section is about Jesus, uh, people identifying Jesus correctly. This is the positive that flows after the last two negatives, the, the light compared to the, the darkness of the last couple of stories. So verse 13, they move up to the region of Caesarea Philippi. If you look at a map, it's up in the far north of Israel. It's, it's well above uh, the, the Sea of Galilee. 
it, it's probably up with uh, lots of Gentiles around. It's a long way away from uh, where all the people are. They finally seem to have escaped the crowds. Uh, and Jesus takes this opportunity to, to debrief the disciples, to, to think back over that last period of ministry. And he says in verse 13, who do people say the Son of Man is? Uh, think back. As you've overheard people talking, what were they saying? And they all chip in. Well, some people reckon you're John the Baptist and some people said Elijah and I heard one guy say you were Jeremiah. But what about you, says Jesus? That's more important. What's your identification? As usual, Peter, first to jump in, boots and all. Verse 16, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. This is the climax of Matthew's story so far. It's a completely clear identification. There's no confusion. There's no misunderstanding. One commentator says he could not have ascribed a higher place to Jesus. His words bring out the essential being of our Lord in the most comprehensive expression in the Gospels. It's pretty big praise, isn't it? Jesus is the Christ or the Messiah, God's promised anointed King predicted in the Old Testament prophets, the one who'd bring in God's kingdom, the one longed for by all the people. But not only that, he's the son of the living God. Now, at the very least, that's a kingly title, right up there with Messiah. Uh, 2 Samuel 7, Psalm 2, talk about God's appointed king being his son in the sense of his representative, the one who reflects him and who acts on his behalf. The king is his son. But just note that Peter and the other disciples have witnessed Jesus' baptism when a voice from heaven said, This is my son, whom I love. With him I'm well pleased. They've heard Jesus time and again call God my father, including in the very next verse. And in the next chapter we're going to see the transfiguration, where Jesus is transformed and, another, and God's voice from heaven again says, this is my son, listen to him. The disciples may not be all the way there yet, but they're growing in their understanding that God's son is more than just a title. That God's son actually reflects something of the nature of Jesus, his, his eternal nature, his eternal relationship with God, his father. Son of the living God. And Peter finally wins a cheer from Jesus. If you look back over the last three or four chapters, there's been quite a few brickbats, uh, but he finally gets the, the bouquet. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. We'll see in the next section, though, he's got the identification right, but he's still a bit fuzzy on the nature of Jesus' kingship. He's got the right business card, but the wrong job description. Yes, Jesus gives him a cheer, but in some ways it's a, it's a bit of a backhanded compliment. <laughs> Jesus is saying, you're blessed. Yes, you've got it right, but you didn't actually work that out on your own. It was your father in heaven who revealed it to you. Uh, and that's comforting for us, isn't it? as we tell our unbelieving friends and family about Jesus. 
It doesn't depend on how clearly and cleverly we explain, how persuasive we are or how persistent we are. It doesn't depend on those things. They might affect it. It doesn't depend on how intelligent our friends are or how good-intentioned they are, well-intentioned they are. But it's all about God revealing the truth of who Jesus is to them. That's what counts. It's all up to him. His spirit blows where he wills. Now all of that means we should be praying for our non-Christian friends and family at least as much as we are speaking to them because it's God who will change them. We should be praying at least as much as we're speaking to our friends. It's interesting, isn't it? I don't know whether you noticed this. The Pharisees and Sadducees ask for a sign from heaven. And then Peter in verse 17 receives a message from from the Father in heaven. Verse 17. What's the message? That that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's the sign from heaven that the Pharisees and Sadducees needed. That's what they would need to correctly identify Jesus. When Jesus says the only sign he'll give them is the sign of Jonah, did you also notice a few verses further on, it's the son of Jonah, Simon, who receives that message? Now, you might just think it's his surname if it wasn't for the fact that this is the only place in the Bible where Simon's dad, Simon Peter's dad, is called Jonah. There's only one other reference in the Bible and he's not actually called Jonah there. John chapter 1, we're told his dad's called John. But it seems like Jesus is focusing in on this name or this alternate name for Peter, Jonah, uh, to to try and link this, this question from the Pharisees, give us a sign to show who you are, and he's connecting it to Peter's declaration that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Everything Matthew's doing, everything Jesus is saying is pointing to that sentence is the thing for you to notice. It's Matthew's, he's pulled out the highlighter, he's pulled out the underliner, he's pulled out whatever it is that you need to do to say this is the bit you need to remember. This is the executive summary so far. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Nothing matters more than identifying Jesus correctly. Now, there's already... Plenty of double meaning stuff, plenty of dad jokes going on in this passage. We've seen that the sort of heaven bit, Jesus telling a bit of a dad joke at the, the start about they want a sign from heaven and Jesus talks about the sky as heaven. Uh, so it's perhaps not surprising that we get this thing about a sign from heaven and got the Father in heaven and Jonah and Jonah. But verse 18, we get another dad joke, if you like, and another pun uh, as Jesus continues his blessing for Peter. Verse 18, Jesus says, just after he's blessed Peter, he says, And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Peter, or Petros, means rock, and Jesus declares that he will build his church on this rock, or Petra, which is feminine. Now there's a whole range of views about what Jesus meant there, And probably most common is that uh, Peter himself is the rock and and he becomes the foundation of the church, the one on whom the church is built. 
But if that's what Jesus meant, it seems funny to me that he's addressing Peter at the start of the sentence, you are Peter, and then in the second part of the sentence he sort of switches to not addressing Peter but talking about Peter and saying, and on this rock I will build my church. So the arguments can go round and round, but uh, I think this rock, uh, Jesus means... Peter's statement about who Jesus is. Uh, Peter's identification that he's the Christ, the son of a living God. That's the testimony that will build, that Jesus will use to build his church. And all of the things we've seen so far that point to that statement as being really important, reinforce that view, I think. So this, I, this sentence, this single sentence about Jesus as God's Messiah and son, and then as people testify to that truth, uh, will be the means by which Jesus builds the church. It certainly proved true in the book of Acts. Peter's sermon at Pentecost uh, in Acts chapter 2 describes the birth of the church. Uh, more than 3,000 were added to the church that day. And if you look at what Peter actually preached on that day, he preached that God raised Jesus from the dead and exalted him to his right hand and made Jesus both Lord and Christ. In other words, Peter was giving a testimony about who Jesus is, that he was the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that was the foundation that Jesus used to build his church, at least in Acts chapter 2. Now, all of, all of that has got an application for the things we do as a church. Of all the things that we can emphasise, all the truths that we can say are important... There's nothing more important than this message of who Jesus is. He's God's appointed, promised, anointed king, God's son, come to bring in his kingdom. We've got to keep pointing people to that truth about Jesus and keep saying it. That's really what it means to be evangelical. Uh, we're always on about the gospel, the news about who Jesus is, how to respond to him. We never move past that message. We never outgrow it. We never move beyond it. It's not simply something we tell to non-Christians. It's a message we keep proclaiming to each other, who Jesus is and how we respond to him. And when we keep doing that, Jesus promises that he will build his church. How good are those words? It's not our church. It's not my church. It's not the Presbyterian's church. It's Jesus' church. And he will take responsibility for building it, if it's his. It's not up to us to build it. We just need to keep testifying to who Jesus is and God will do, and Jesus will use that to build his church. And he'll build it strong and solid. He'll build it strong and solid. Verse 18 says, even the gates of Hades won't overcome it. Once again, all sorts of opinions, but I think basically what Jesus is saying, that even death won't be able to defeat the church. That certainly played itself out in the history of the, the Christian church, hasn't it? All the way from Jesus' time until today, anti-Christian institutions, governments, armies, powerful individuals have tried to destroy the church. They try to kill people. They kill people, but they have not succeeded in killing the church. They arrest, they imprison, they torture, they kill. The church is still growing. The gates of Hades 
will not overcome it. Uh, And it's in this role as God's king that Jesus makes another promise in verse 19. Verse 19, he says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. The idea is of a king who gives authority over the palace to his steward. Now, Isaiah chapter 22 we, uh, is, a, is a prophecy from God and he's speaking to Eliakim. And God says he's going to make Eliakim uh, the new palace administrator, the new steward in Hezekiah's palace. Uh, and uh, God says of uh, this guy Eliakim, He will be the father to those who live in Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. I will place on his shoulder the key to the house of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. Eliakim has the authority of the king himself. He's been appointed by God. When Eliakim makes a decision about something, here God is promising that that decision will stand. That heaven's authority stands behind Eliakim as the palace administrator. No one can overturn his decisions. What he permits is permitted. What he forbids is forbidden. That's a very interesting verse, isn't it, when we think about what Jesus says. Um, So for Eliakim, this this key to the house of David that's on his shoulder, it it might have been a literal key, like on on some sort of... uh, necklace around him, may have been a ring with the king's seal on it, it it might all just be a metaphor, no one's really quite sure. So when we think about this verse and how it connects with what Jesus has promised Peter, I think the idea is that Jesus as king is promising that Peter, the steward of his his palace, of the the one who uh, leads the church, uh, will have all the authority of heaven's king of Jesus himself. Decisions that are made by church leadership about how church functions uh, will be reinforced by Jesus. Things that are forbidden, things that are permitted, they're not going to be overturned on appeal by a higher court. Earthly decisions have the reinforcement uh, of heaven, of Jesus, of King Jesus. Earthly decisions will have big heavenly implications. Now all of that means that what we're doing here is not irrelevant or insignificant. The business of the church is not marginal or trivial. Shame on us if all we're doing is running business meetings, holding hands, maintaining buildings and having cups of tea. We are involved in the stuff of eternity. We're involved in things that are changing heaven, saving souls, declaring and glorifying Jesus among the nations. We're preparing people for eternity as we grow them more and more like Jesus. Jesus' church is the centre of God's purposes in his world. Jesus is building his church. He's authorising and supporting us as we strive to make the king of heaven the king of everything, of heaven and earth. 
Peter's declared clearly who Jesus is, but they're dangerous words, at least politically. Easily misunderstood, as we'll see in a moment. It's not yet time for Jesus to be revealed. So verse 20, he warns the disciples not to tell anyone. Next section, verse 21, he begins to explain more about the job description. It's interesting, isn't it? He begins to teach. This is a long process. There's a curriculum to work through. The disciples are slow learners. This is remedial teaching that's going on here. He begins to teach. Jesus' church will be built. In the end, he will be victorious. But that victory is going to come through defeat and sacrifice. So verse 21. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests and teachers, that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Just easy for us. We just accept that. It just seems obvious to us that's what's going to happen. And yet for Peter, it's like he, Jesus is speaking in another language. It just doesn't fit his picture of who the conquering Christ should be. And so Peter promises to do whatever he can to stop that happening. Never. This will never happen to you. I will stand in the way to stop that happening. But Jesus knows that the only way to life and victory on the other side is actually through the valley of defeat and death. And so for Peter to say he's going to stand in the way, it's just a temptation for Jesus. It's a temptation to choose an easier path, to choose a path of self-preservation rather than self-sacrifice, to choose the pain-free way, It's a temptation and so he says to Peter, verse 23, get out of the way. You're trying to trip me up. You're just like Satan himself who was trying to get me to go another way. Your perspective is earthly, it's not heavenly. Jesus is determined to do his father's will and that will is suffering and death. In fact, says Jesus, as he goes on to say, it's actually no different for anyone who follows me. These are the implications when we identify Jesus correctly. Verse 24, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. You see, once we recognise Jesus, we follow him because he's king and God's son. And when we follow him, it means following his way. And because Jesus suffered and died, that means we too will suffer and die. You see there in verse 25? Whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me will save it. The only way for Jesus to a victorious life was through suffering and death. And it's the same for us. The only way for us to find true life is actually to lose our life for Jesus. To hand over everything. It's like learning to swim. You never learn with your feet touching the bottom. You can't learn to swim while your feet stay on the bottom of the pool. You actually have to hold your breath, push off from the bottom and step into the deep. 
that's when you can begin to enjoy the glorious freedom of swimming, hopefully, or you sink, one of the two, but you can't do it with your feet still on the bottom. And it's the same with Jesus. Jesus is saying, give up your life, step into the deep, give up your safety, your control, dive in, let go of that need to be safe, to be first, to be great, to be right. Unburden yourself of that desire for self-protection or comfort. That's the only way to experience true life, to swim in the ocean, now or for eternity. Lose your life for Jesus. Dive in and he will reward you. We do that once when we first become a Christian, but we have to keep doing it. Bible study this week, someone was saying it's a daily struggle uh, to give up self-control and the ability to be safe. The battle is always about who's in charge of your life. Every day, take up your cross. That's the option. The other option is to, to paddle around in the safe, shallow end, to hold on to your power, to maintain the illusion that you're actually controlling your own destiny, your health, your fulfilment, your death. But do that and you'll end up losing your soul, says Jesus. Can you see Jesus? Do you identify him correctly? Will you follow him? You won't regret it. Your soul will thank you for it. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you once again for these uh, stories of Jesus, these descriptions, these words. Uh, they're more than that. They're, they're a window uh, to see Jesus. We pray that, your, that you would reveal uh, the truth of these things to each of us uh, and that we would see him and trust him, that we might truly live um, 